0: Good morning. Welcome to Encounter Church. My name is Chris Causey. I'm the lead pastor here, and I'm thrilled that you decided to join us today, whether you're here or you're joining us online. Uh, Christmas can be a little bit of a frantic season. So even this morning, you've kind of seen, with just a little bit of uniqueness, we wanted to say, hey, let's kind of inject a little bit of surprise and fun and delight in what could be the most stressful time of the year. I know the songs say, it's the most wonderful time of the year. I know that the music seems upbeat and positive all the time, but then you sit in traffic for 17 minutes, and you move three feet in the midst of a shopping mall, and it does not feel like the most wonderful time of the year. It feels like a time of the year you might want to kill someone, right? And so this idea that Christmas is the most wonderful time of the year is not always true. In fact, I actually believe, and this is why we're in the midst of the series, that Christmas can be one of the most difficult times of the year. The things that we've been wondering about, this question, what do you wonder about? The things that typically we've been able to distract ourselves with the busyness of life, with our work schedules, with kind of the pace of this place to the next place to the next place. At Christmas time, all that gets kind of grinded to a halt. And the things that we've been trying to ignore, the people that we've been trying to avoid, all of a sudden they're sitting across from us at dinner and we have to lock eyes with them. And what becomes the most wonderful time of year in a song is now one of those times that you're just filled with wonder, wondering about your finances, wondering about your job, wondering about that season and the stage of life and is there a Mr. Right, is there a Mr. Mrs. Right, is this the Mr. Wrong or Mrs. Wrong in my life and all of those things, the loneliness, Christmas has a way of bringing that out. And we decided coming into the series that we didn't want to give you a series. We didn't want to walk through passages from the New Testament and the Old Testament that were just feel good, that just kind of flighted and flew kind of in the same vein as the, the Christmas songs that are playing on your radio. We wanted to step into life and to say, what does it look like this Christmas? And what is there from the first Christmas that we can bring into this Christmas that can make a difference this Christmas? And today, in some ways, a lot of the series has been driving to this message and next week's message, that we wanted to have a series of different conversations around some different themes before we pressed into this one, because what I wanted to do today is talk about not the stress of Christmas, because we all understand that. I want to talk about the pain that is present in some of our lives during Christmas. For some of us, we're walking through seasons where we've lost a loved one this year. For some of us, we're walking through seasons of financial pressure and wanting to have that magical Christmas moment with our kids, but knowing our bank account doesn't have that same type of magic. And that reality of pain, how do we in this Christmas move through it? Because what I know about all of us is either we're in the midst of it, we just came out of it, or we're about to go into it. (laughs) That's pretty much it. And I think that there is a beautiful story around the first Christmas story that can give us wisdom, that can speak advice and direction to us this Christmas about how to navigate the pain, the uncertainty, and the pressure that sometimes this season accentuates. Jason referenced the Encounter Church app. It's something that we've created free just for you. And in that app is a little icon that says message notes. And you will find a whole series of passages. If if you just downloaded the app and you just clicked on message notes, you may have a bit of a panic when you see the number of passages. I wanted to give you the entirety of the story today because I don't have the time to process through the story today. So I just wanted to give you kind of the overview in the midst of it because what I want to do today is kind of hit the highlights of this story that maybe you've never even thought about as a Christmas story or perhaps perhaps Maybe you're new to the church scene and you're not even sure, you didn't even know this thing existed. And yet in this obscure kind of subplot, kind of on the back burner of the Christmas story, is this powerful moment in that first Christmas that can give us wisdom and guidance this Christmas. It's found in the book of Luke, and if you remember, the Bible as a whole is um, really broken into two major volumes. There is the, what is called the first volume, the Old Testament, and then the second volume, the New Testament. The New Testament is primarily around the Christian kind of teachings and the church. The first four books in the New Testament volume is biographies on the life of Jesus himself written by people who knew him or researched him. And the one today that I want to look at, this section in one of those biographies, was written by a man named Luke. Now, Luke was a medical doctor turned historical researcher. Luke was brilliant. In fact, if you were to spend time working through Luke's original writings in the Greek, you would notice very quickly that Luke was an incredibly educated man. His letter in the Greek, it stands out amongst all the New Testament letters for the depth and the word selection, his use of medical terms that creep into the manuscript that he wrote, you can tell Luke was bright, he was detailed, and he brought all of that mind to researching who Jesus was, and then later he writes the book of Acts where he researches who the church is, and this is why we're not surprised when we, look in, when we see in Luke chapter 1 verse 5, five this, this phrase, it says, in the time of Herod, king of Judea. See, Luke is not writing a once upon a time story. You know, those once upon a time stories that you probably grew up with that your kids love, where it was once upon a time, what time? I don't know because I'm not sure it's real, but once upon a time. Luke is dating this moment to a very specific time period in human history. There was only a small narrow window in which Herod was king of Judea. Luke, by this statement, at the very beginning of his letter, is calling us to call him into question. He's like, look, I'm putting this thing on fact, on record. This happens during this time block when that guy is king. Go look it up. Luke is a historical researcher. And he says, During this time period when Herod is king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abishai, and his wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. And for us reading this, we may not necessarily connect with that sentence. Remember, Luke is writing this almost 2,000 years ago to a group of people who are living in that time period, living in that time slot, and so these names mean something to them. Abishai and Aaron are two famous Priest. They would have been the LeBron James and the Steph Curry of like Jewish priests. Everyone would have instantly recognized their name. Oh, that's the LeBron James of priests. Of course, I know who that is. That's impressive. Oh, that's oh that's, that's Steph Curry. Oh, I, I know who that is. Wow, this is a really impressive couple. Look who they both come from, because bloodline mattered to these people. A lot of the confidence and the authority that you would have came from the birth and the family lineage that you came from. The Jewish people at this time kept incredible records of their father's father, father's father, father, all the way back. And so Luke is saying, hey, look, again, in history, in this specific kind of early version of 23andMe, here's where they come from. This is their bloodline. This is what they're about. And we're introduced to this couple... Because it's in this couple's story that we find some wisdom. We learn a little bit more. It says in verse 6 that both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees. And Lord's commands and decrees was a way of saying they they lived out all of the Old Testament. Um, The Old Testament has, if you were to count them, 613 um, commands. 613 and what he's saying is that they were so committed in their faith, they were so faithful to God, that they're blameless in all 613. Which is really impressive. I don't know if I have anything in my head that has 600 different items attached to it. That's what Google is for. But these people have all 613, and not only do they have them up here, they live them out here. And it says that they're blameless, which I'm not sure could ever be written about me. But it's written about them. And that's verse 6. That's who they are. And then verse 7. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive. And they were both very old. I love... You, can, you pick up on Luke's brilliant writing, don't you? In two sentences, you get the whole entirety of who they are. They're righteous. They're blameless. They're sharp. They're such a respected couple, yet simultaneously... There is this glaring, large butt" in verse seven that says, that "Here's the reality of what was going on around them. And he kind of punctuates it. It's not just that they're a young couple who are blameless in the sight of God, who are righteous, who are faithful, who have character as deep as the Grand Canyon. No, no, it's not that they're a young couple struggling with infertility. This is an old couple, and it's over. It's done. There is no hope anymore. There is no breakthrough procedure. There is no try this and maybe this will work. It's done. It's finished. They've moved past it. And this is where this couple is blameless and barren. In one sentence, we hear both descriptions. And it's moving. And it's really easy to read this story if you're familiar with it and forget that we read it from 2,000 years back, but they were walking it with each step. They had spent decades, decades of being blameless and barren. And this is a culture that to be barren, it wasn't just, it wasn't courageous to stand up and tell people about your infertility struggle, it was disgraceful. You see, in this religious backdrop, to be barren meant that people talked about you. They thought something was wrong with you. Not just like wrong medically wrong. I mean something disgracefully wrong. Something secretly you've done that no one else knows about wrong. This is, she walks out of the room and everyone mummers about Elizabeth and who she really is. Is she really blameless? Because we know God only does stuff like that to people who are like that. And that B was a letter that she wore on her chest because she walks into those little priestly gatherings and there's all the kids running around and there's the priest and then there's Elizabeth and Zechariah and they have no one. And year after year, that question, do you want to have one? Are you planning on having a child? Just kept hitting until finally people stopped asking. Because in heaven's eyes, they were blameless, but in the worlds, they were barren. And this story, I imagine if you and I stepped into it a little bit, that you would find yourself in this story pretty quickly. Maybe it's not barrenness, though it may be. It could be an infertility struggle, but I imagine that I don't have to sit down with every one of you to know that there are parts of your life that are barren. That there are parts of your story where there is no life where you desperately want there to be. It may be in a job search. It may be in a relationship. It may be in a relationship that you wanna have that you don't have. That all of us know what it's like to walk through a season, broken heart, loneliness, disappointment. Maybe if you're a teenager to have this school year and not know anyone and feel like you just can't break through any circle or maybe you're dealing with a health situation and it's just just never ending. You never feel like you're gonna be healthy and all you wanna do is be healthy. That we find ourselves in these places and this is exactly where they are. You see what happens is that disappointment is born out of what I believe is a gap between our expectations and our experience. We have this expectation, this is what we want to have happen in our lives, and yet the experience of where we are and the difference between this experience and this expectation is called disappointment. And the greater the gap, the greater the disappointment. The deeper the expectation, the deeper the disappointment. And when you live in that season where there is that disappointment, where there is that gap, it it does start to erode you on the inside. It starts to discourage you. And I'm so grateful for this story, not because of what we're about to read, but because they were living it out for us. And as we'll find in a few minutes, that they have wisdom and guidance for us. We continue, it says that once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by Lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the burning, time of the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. So this is what you need to know. So Zechariah is a priest. Now this is a once in the lifetime kind of moment for him because while I introduced this couple, the reality is, is there were about 18,000 of them. The priestly bloodline had had been playing out for a while, and this family had grown. And so now there are about 18,000 different priests in Israel at this time. There were only two times a day in which incense was offered inside. Some of you may not feel like you have a, a grasp of what this visually looks like, but if you've ever been in a Catholic church or a Greek Orthodox or some type of Orthodox church, you've probably noticed there have been uh, this moment where there's typically a golden or at least bronze looking vessel is walked down and smoke is rising out of it. That concept of incense burning and uh, visible smoke kind of lifting up out of that container is directly pulled from this Old Testament practice. This was a very Jewish symbolic way of representing God's pr- the prayers of the people to God. And so the priest would take them into this very special holy temple and they would go in with the prayers kind of lifting up and it was this symbolic gesture of the priest bringing the prayers to God. Now, this is a very different world than what we live in. But the Jewish belief was that God was present in the temple. That was where he physically resided, and that was the place you could meet with him. Nowadays, we, we recognize, because of the New Testament story and scripture and theology that flowed out of that, that God is everywhere. We can pray to him, and that we don't need a symbolic gesture. We just need to open our hearts and our mouths. But this moment was a powerful moment. It happened twice a day. It happened around 8 or 9 a.m., and it happened at 3 p.m every single day. And the way it would play out is that 52 weeks in a year, um, each division would be assigned a week, and then those groups, those thousands of priests would then be determined by, a simple, it says lot, but it's essentially a dice roll. And so most likely, Zachariah has never, in the course of his entire life, been inside the holy place he's about to walk into. Because this is a once-in-the-lifetime moment for him. There's so many priests Most priests never get to do this. And so Zechariah's big moment, his professional moment, it's the presentation before the CEO, quite literally, right? This is his moment, his defining moment. And so he goes in, and everyone's on on the outside. You go in very quickly as a priest, because Jewish folklore was that if you walked into this special place and there was something about you, there was kind of disobedience in your life, if there were these secret kind of things that you had going on that God would know and that you could die. So this was Jewish folklore took this moment very seriously. You don't walk in and linger. You get in, you say your prayers, you do your deal, and you get back out. And so literally just moments would typically go by. And that's why they all have gathered. And it says that when he walks in, there is an angel of the Lord who appears to him. Now, that is not normal. It is not normal today. It was not normal there. How do I know it's not normal? It says when Zachariah saw him, he was startled and he was gripped with fear. Two things that tells me. One is that's not normal. And then two is that this probably was not a chubby naked baby with little tiny wings right? Chubby, naked babies with little tiny wings don't grip you with fear. They make you go, aww, right? And where's the kid's parent? The kid's naked and flying around, right? I mean, so like naturally, he's gripped with fear and he's like, what in the world? Because I think this angel probably looks a little bit more like the rock. And I'm imagining he's bald too, just throwing that one out there. He looks really good. And so this bald kind of rock type angel, and he's standing there and he walks in and Zachariah is like, oh, junk. Am I about to die? That's his thought. He's like, this is judgment. I've heard the stories of priests that didn't come out alive. And this is what happens. An angel shows up and takes him out. And what does the angel say? He says, do not be afraid, which is a very, very fitting thing to say. Do not be afraid. And I get for some of you, you're hearing this story and you're like, I'm not even sure I believe in God. Now you're asking me to believe in angels. I'm not asking you to believe in angels. I'm just asking you to follow me with this text because you may not be able to comfortably sit where we are, but I'm telling you there's something coming around this corner where I think you will find something that can speak to your situation. Because here in this moment, the angel says back, you, don't be afraid, your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. Now, it's easy in this moment, right, to say, oh, I bet he goes in and he prays for a child. That's not what he's praying for. We find this out. It says, He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. That's an interesting phrase. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for for the Lord. Now, you will probably notice that there's quotation marks around that, and there's a reason. You and I would not recognize this passage just reading it, but for Zechariah, this gives us insight to what the angel is saying. When he says, I have heard your prayer, you have to realize for the priest walking in, he's not there praying his personal prayers. He's there representing the people praying the nation's prayers. First century Israel was was a nation that was inhabited by the Roman Empire. These people oppressed them. They crushed them. They taxed them heavily. They were an occupied nation. Imagine we were invaded by a foreign nation and everywhere you went every single day, there was a soldier from that country standing armed. How comfortable would you feel? You're constantly reminded that you're an enslaved people that you're a conquered people. And so naturally, what's going on in the hearts and the lives of people in this time block is there are two things they're praying for. Two very specific things they're praying for that's about the one thing. Remember, the Old Testament has these two central promises. If you want to understand the entire Old Testament, here's the cheat notes. The first promise is the promised land. The second promise is the promised one. Those two promises embody all of the Old Testament in a nutshell. The promised one at this point is what Israel and the nation of Israel is praying towards, praying for. This promised one, the Messiah, has a very distinct message. There's a very distinct promise that God makes about the Messiah. And it's the words that's quoted by this angel. This angel is quoting the last book that the Old Testament has in it. He's quoting, quoting the book of Malachi, and he's quoting the last words of Malachi. You see, for the Israelite people, 400 years prior to this moment, the last time they believed God spoke to them was through a prophet called Malachi, who said, it's almost here. The promised one that we've talked about is about to arrive, but right before he comes, there will be a messenger. And he uses the word Elijah in Malachi. Malachi. And you don't have to understand all the richness to know that for a Jewish man or a Jewish woman in this day, for a little Jewish boy or girl growing up, you were being told to pray for this thing, the promised one, Messiah, and the messenger who was going to come before him. Because when they came, victory and freedom would follow. We have expectations around election years, right? We kind of get excited about the hope of electing a new leader or a new group of leaders. This, this doesn't compare to the expectation inside of these people because they were like, when they finally come, we will be free from wrong. And so they prayed this all the time, twice a day, every single day of the year. And this is what Zachariah is in there praying. And what does the angel say? I have heard your prayer. And then he launches into this quote. From this book, that's the last time they've heard God speak 400 years ago. And he says, oh, by the way, that messenger, he's coming. Oh, by the way, that messenger, he's going to be your son. That messenger is going to be your son. And you're going to name him John. Now, Zechariah naturally, is a little terrified and unsure. And so he says, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man, and my wife is well along in years. And I just want to say, Zachariah, well done. Yeah. Notice that? He's like, he's like, I'm old. My wife, she's seasoned like fine wine. <laughs> he, he's, not, he's not like, my wife is old. He's like, I'm old, and she's good. She's, she's, she's yeah, she's been marinating and all these kind of sweet things. Right? So, well played, Zachariah. Well played. And so here he is. He's like, look, I, I am not a doctor or a biologist, but I understand that we're past that point. And the angel says, like, I, I think there's a little bit of irony, like, dunk, dunk, dunk. hello, I'm the rock, for crying out loud. Like, you're talking to me. Don't you know who I am? I'm Gabriel. And Gabriel, if there was a, a little hierarchical like, structure, like he would be the assistant to the regional manager. I mean, like, he's pretty high up there in the chain of command inside of heaven. Like, this guy is pretty important. He's like, I'm Gabriel, and I talk to God, and he sent me here. What is your malfunction? Essentially, right? He's like, I stand in the presence of God, and I've been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. And he's like, so you want a sign? Let me give you a sign. Now, you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. He's like, you want a miracle? You want to see a sign of what I'm about to happen is going to happen? Well, here's the sign. You aren't going to be able to talk for the next 10 months. There you go. Sit and ponder this moment, Zechariah, because I'm going to do something in it. And, And on the surface, you may say, well, that's a little kind of tough, I'm pretty sure that if you're standing in front of an angel and he tells you something, you probably should go with it, right? I mean, we understand that when we walk in to the registry of motor vehicles, we recognize that person behind the counter has a lot of power. We're going to listen to him. And this is like so much at a higher level, right? He's like, simmer down. But I also have a theory. I think it helped him, right? Because he leaves there and what what does he do? He goes home and It says, when his service is complete, the week is done. After this, his wife, Elizabeth, became pregnant. I I got this theory. I I told a couple this this past week during counseling. I was like, you are never better looking than when you're listening and not talking. (laughs) It's like, you hear me, bro? I'm helping you out here. You are never better looking than when you're listening and not talking. And then I look at his wife, and she's like, mmm. It's like, I told you. Listen to your wife and don't talk. And I think this is probably one of the miracles that happens is he just can't mess it up. She's like, oh, you're so, you just listen so well to me. It's like you just want to hear everything I'm saying and you don't talk, you know? But in this little tiny moment of humor, I think that there's something actually profound going on. And so in the kind of the rest of the time, this, I want to give you the two things and the three things that I see, actually. The first thing that this couple had that you and I can take from them. As they had for us this posture, this example of having perspective. And this is very much present in verse six, right? When we see that they are blameless, yet barren. I think as a couple, they had a recognition where verse six defines who they are. Verse seven describes where they are in life. And that's a perspective thing because what's easy to happen in us is that we switch them. We allow where we are and what we're going to to define us. We allow these situations and these circumstances to mark our lives. We allow them to determine who we are. We allow them to set the course of our lives. And what we see with Zechariah and Elizabeth is that who they are is not what they're going through, they're blameless but they just happened to be walking through barrenness too. They had a perspective, a perspective even more so, I think what this pulls out is the fact that they had a focus on what they could control, what they could influence and impact. Because what happens when we find ourselves in pain is one of the first things that we lose is perspective. We fixate on the things we cannot control, and we lose sight of the things that we can And so what do we see with this couple? They are blameless. They are faithful. They are walking through their struggles. And what are they doing? They're not fixating on the struggles that they cannot control. They're focused on the choices that they can still make. They can still be faithful to God. They can still obey those 613 statutes that they'd memorized from childhood. They had control over that, even if they couldn't control that. And that perspective piece, I think... Help to kind of give them protection as they walked through this very difficult situation. They did not get bitter in their disappointment. They did not allow their disappointment to define them. And even beyond that, I think because they were priests and because they grew up in homes of priests, they had a very fundamental understanding of the brokenness of the world. And by extension, the brokenness of who they were to. Did you know that the Pentagon spends $21 billion a year on rust? Your money, 21 billion of it this year, was spent on rust. Because the trajectory of this universe is decay. And it's broken. And this is what they understood. The world is not the way it's supposed to be. And neither are we. And for some of you, where you are, if I can just offer you this brief perspective that they had, is that the pain you find yourself in does not have to destroy your faith. It can deepen your faith. Because for many of us, as a pastor, I sit down and I hear this conversation of people who will point back to painful moments of their life and they'll say, well, that's the moment that destroyed my faith. But I look at Zachariah and Elizabeth and I see them walk through difficulty and it deepens their faith, it doesn't destroy it. My personal struggles and journey through the course of my entire existence hasn't destroyed my faith, it's deepened it. My wife and I have had literally the hardest last year and a half of our lives. And I can tell you from personal experience that my faith is deeper today, even simultaneously as my questions are too. Because they can coexist together. And Zechariah and Elizabeth are showing us that. Beyond that, the second thing that you notice, it actually plays out a little bit later. We find in, uh, around verse 26 that in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, her cousin gets pregnant. A little girl named Mary is told she's going to have a baby boy named Jesus. Now, Elizabeth and Mary are akin to each other. They're family members. And and Elizabeth, for five months, has lived in seclusion. And what does God do? God sends Mary to Elizabeth, which I think is a really profound thing. Elizabeth is living by herself in this little world with a husband who cannot talk. And all the weight and the shame that people have heaped on her and what do you do when you're walking through something like that you go to priestly kind of dessert gatherings and well, how are you doing, Abishai? Oh, I'm good, me and the wife. We just took a, a lovely cruise, you know, to, to Rome. And, you know, and then we walked through some mountains and we spent a weekend up in the, you know, on the coast. Oh, that's great. How about you, Zachariah and Elizabeth? Mm. Oh, oh, okay, Elizabeth? Well, um, w- well, what happened is Zachariah, he saw an angel. It looked like the rock, not, not a baby, a little chubby angel. And, um, well, the angel says to him, oh, you're going to have a baby, And so I'm actually pregnant. Uh, Do you want something else to drink? Because I'm going to go get that now. Like, who do you talk to if you're them? And in this place of seclusion, God directs Mary to her. And for the remainder of Elizabeth's pregnancy, Mary is there with her. Because I think God is showing us in this passage that it's not just perspective that we need when we walk through pain, it's people too. That you and I were never meant to walk through pain by ourselves. We weren't designed for it. We weren't created for the isolation. We weren't created for the agony. We were meant to walk it with someone. Because when we walk through our pain together, we get through our pain together and we're better because of it. You need someone when you're walking through the season of infertility or when you're walking through the season of relationship struggles or your divorce or your kids reactions and choices in life and the quiet agony that it's causing. You need someone to walk it with you because if not you're going to find yourself waving a white flag and surrendering because it gets too hard, and the night feels too long. And eventually, if you're not careful, you succumb to the whispers, give up. But Mary and Elizabeth, at one of the most difficult times of both of their lives, one of the most tumultuous times of their lives, they have each other. It's just a sentence. And I think there's something there that perspective and people can help us walk through pain. I've been working on this passage for about two weeks now. And it was one of these messages I struggled with sincerely to, to get clarity. It was around midnight last night that I think I finally got my head to click to it because I kept beating my head up against this passage. Like, there's something else there. I don't see it yet. There's more than the perspective. There's more than the people, although that's helpful. There's more. And it hit me. When I was reading Elizabeth and Mary and how they're spending time together, I kind of just sat, just kind of visually walked into the room with Elizabeth and Mary, who inside of both of them are the two boys that are the greatest hopes of their nation. It's like, what was that like? Here's a woman that should not be having a baby who's well beyond her years. And here's a woman who should not be having a baby. She's not even married and she's never even known a man. And they're sitting there having a conversation. I'm like, the two greatest hopes of Israel are living inside of them. And then I thought about Mary. I was like, you know, Mary, quite honestly, I mean, God chose her. But from a parenting standpoint, let's just be real. She had the easiest job on planet Earth. Like if you were going to parent a child, like parenting Jesus had to be the easiest thing. I don't know about you, but as a parent, the most, if there is anything that might break me before I'm done with this world, it's the repeating myself. You know what I'm talking about? It's like, I'm sorry, do you not understand English? Let me say it again. Come over here come over here. Do I need to add inflection? And by like the fourth or fifth time, you're like, do I need to learn another language for you to understand the words coming out of my mouth? Mary does not know what that means. Jesus, yes, mother. She asked Jesus, and before she finished with his name, he was already obeying it. In fact, the only thing in recorded history that we have where there was a little bit of tension in the family was because he didn't want to leave church. Like, for real? People are talking about, yeah, I caught my kids smoking, vaping these e-cigarettes. It's the latest thing in first century Jerusalem. And Mary's like, I just don't understand that. Jesus is, he, he doesn't just meet his girl. He's home early and he's studying. He's such a good kid. Like Mary had one job and it was to not mess it up. Right? Jesus probably parented her more than she parented him. Let's just be real. And so I'm not discounting Mary, but I'm saying from a parenting standpoint, she had the easiest job in human history. She just didn't have to mess it up. That was her one job. But then there's Elizabeth. Now here's the Messiah, and there is the messenger. Now if you read about John the Baptist, which is what he's historically called, What you'll notice about John the Baptist is John the Baptist is different. He's not God in flesh, he's not perfect. What he has to do, the angel has already kind of alluded, is a little bit harder. John is going to stand, ultimately, fast forward John's life, about three decades later, John will lose his head. Why will he lose his head? It's because John will walk into the room with the most powerful man in that region and will say to that man, who is the king that Rome has put in place, Oh, by the way, you are a murderer and a liar, and you are wrong, and you should stop living your life the way you're living it and repent. Like, change the way you're living, king. He's a man who will stand up to an entire nation and tell them the choices they're making are the wrong choices, but there is a right way. He's a man who will have to stand up against power, be constantly misunderstood, be constantly judged, and yet all simultaneously has to remain blameless in the course of that. He has to walk through his life living in a wilderness, being misunderstood, judged, and hated. By his peers. And this is where the light bulb clicked on for me. If you're God, how do you parent that kid? How do you put a child, put all of that into a child? You pick a man and a woman who had lived decades Being blameless, and yet being constantly judged and treated with disgrace. You pick a family who knows what it's like to stay committed to God even if everyone else around them does not understand, does not agree, or even secretly whispers behind their back. How do you teach a child to be able to stand up the weight of peer pressure and people talking about you behind your back and to your back? You put them in the house of a man and a woman who knew intimately the pain of being talked about, who knew intimately about the disgrace and the agony that came from being misunderstood from a community and yet did not waver in their character and their commitment to God. That's the kind of house you raise that kind of child in. And I was like, oh my goodness. That's incredible. So this past week ago, I... um. Our family was away, we were celebrating our daughter's birthday and, and my graduation, and um, it was the night before my graduation, and so we were, um, we went out to eat as a family, my mom was in town um, for the graduation, and uh, we were like sitting down to dinner, it was a nice restaurant, and I looked at Jenny, and I was like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to be, I'm going to live a little wild tonight. I'm going to celebrate because this is the moment I have been waiting for for years because for those who are kind of new, um, we've been working through and I just graduated with my doctorate this past Friday, and so thank you, and, and so it's been hard, and so we got through it, and so I'm like, I look at her, and I'm like, woman, I'm gonna be wild tonight. She's like, okay. The waitress walks up, she's like, what would you like, and I was like, I want a Caesar salad. (laughs) Uh, I'm sorry, sir, what? I want a Caesar salad, and I want romaine lettuce. (laughs) Give it to me. Because sometimes a man needs his Caesar salad. And the lady's looking at me, she's like, oh, I don't know if we have it, but I'll go check in the kitchen to see if we do. I was like, you go do that. Living wild tonight. I don't know what that says about me or the age that we live in that romaine lettuce is living wild, but it is true. And everybody in my family is like, are you broke? Did something happen? Did this, this kind of snap you? And I'm like, no, I just want to, I want romaine lettuce. The world told me I couldn't have it, and tonight I have it. And so I eat this romaine lettuce and this Caesar salad. And about three hours later, I started getting really nervous. I was like, wait a second, this is stupid. I really want to make it to tomorrow, because like, I've been working for this day for a long time. So I get online and I start Googling romaine lettuce and will I die? And so I'm Googling it and it's like, I'm walking through you know, like the CDC and their findings and the reports, because I'm a nerd and I'm reading it. And what I, what I read is that uh, they were able to determine what caused the romaine lettuce issue. And it was that um, this got mixed with water that were sprayed on the romaine lettuce. And so then I start looking up which, which were the places that this get sprayed on that romaine lettuce, trying to determine, did I eat this lettuce that had this sprayed on it? And, and as the night turned in the morning, I started to feel a little bit better, and it kind of started to click for me. While I'm sitting there at that table, I was thinking about us not being at church on that Sunday and how I was looking forward to this Sunday. And for whatever reason, romaine lettuce made it click for me. You see, because I was like, the irony, right? This mixed with water sprayed on top of the romaine will make you sick. But this put underneath the seed of the romaine and it makes it good. I was like, it's fascinating how this in the right place can change everything. And this in the wrong place changes everything too. (laughs) And I think what we see with Zachariah and Elizabeth is this in the right place. We see a God who does not promise to take us or protect us, or remove us from our pain. This, forgive me, this stupid idea that God will not give you more than you can handle, I don't know where that comes from, but it's a fortune cookie. It's not the Bible. The promise is not that God will not give us more than we can handle. The promise is that God will take whatever's been handed to us, and and if it's handed back to Him, He will do something incredible with it. He does not promise to deliver us from our pain, but He promises to do something with our pain if we trust it to Him. And that our pain in the right place becomes the very fertilizer for this very gracious thing that He can do in our lives. The name John means the Lord is gracious. The name John is a reminder to Zachariah and Elizabeth that I have heard and I've watched your pain. And what you did faithfully with your perspective and with people is that you put your pain in the right place, hoping and trusting that one day I would bring something out of that space that you placed it. That in your grief, I could do something good. And in your death, that I could bring life. And I'm not saying that like Zachariah and Elizabeth that all those years spent barren prepared them to parent this child uniquely. I'm not saying that God's going to give you the thing that you're longing for, but I am saying to you confidently that when I look at the Christmas story and its aftermath, that what I see is a God who takes the cross and all of this that was placed on Him. And three days later, He breaks forward And from that grave and all of the victory and hope and peace could be placed on us. That I see a God who can take our pain and produce something far more beautiful than we could ever imagine. And that's why in the midst of this Christmas, you and I can have hope because of the first Christmas. Let's pray.